This is Brainstem with your host, neuroscientist Dr. Hilary Marusak. Production by Amanpreet and Manmeet Bogle. Dan, I am so excited to finally see you face-to-face, quote-unquote. Um, nice to meet you. If you want to go ahead and just briefly introduce yourself. Definitely. Nice to meet you, too. Uh, big fan of your work. So my name is uh, Dan Zaya-Joseph. I am running uh, a little bit of a study on uh, psychology, and, and we're going to talk about that. So I, I have uh, Instagram, at Combat Psych, or I'm sorry, at Combat Psychology, um, and I'm currently in the military. I'm serving in the army as a platoon leader and I'm working on a master's at this moment in time, wrapping up in the next few months as I build out a thesis on what I call combat psychology and uh, starting a second master's, a clinical psychology master's next year. So for now, I'm a former entrepreneur in the genetic space, currently in the military as a platoon leader, uh, up and coming psychologist in the making. So that's sort of the quick and dirty introduction to who I am. Awesome. Thank you for that. And that's definitely how we met. I like how you plugged your Instagram already. He has an amazing Instagram, so definitely go follow him. We definitely share a lot of interests in terms of psychology and the brain and what you're calling combat psychology, which I love that phrase. So I want to get a little bit into your background because your background is also very interesting. And then we'll turn to talking about things like PTSD and trauma and some of your current work. So can you start by just giving us kind of a brief overview of how you got to your current place? So I come from a background in cellular biology. I went to school at UC Santa Barbara and worked in um, all things like molecular bio. And so my background, I'm a huge science nerd, and uh, I've always had a nose in the books since I was a little kid. Um, And then currently... So I was working in biotech for quite a while and a lot of my friends were in the military and I just realized I was hitting my thirties and I have just kind of been behind a desk and and really sort of living a safe life. And I wanted to do something adventurous and outside of my comfort zone. So then I entered into, um, into the military. It's a quick contract, a few years, about three years, three and a half years. Um, I want to dig into trauma and PTSD, which is really the focus of this discussion. And people typically think about PTSD in the context of military veterans. And you are in the military, so you're very um, equipped to to speak about those issues. But I think people don't often consider that trauma and PTSD can happen um, for other reasons, like being in a car accident or um, being in a domestic violence situation or childhood abuse, which is what I study in the lab. So can you talk about um, just your view of trauma and PTSD? Um, I have, I mean, I work with people who, let's say we're working on the demo range doing explosives and whatnot, and 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 we have a a scheduled explosion that goes off. There's people with with, um, PTSD in the military who will all of a sudden they'll just shudder when they feel that that blast hit because they remember, and this could be a distant explosion, they remember, say, you know, a bomb going off um, overseas and then what followed through was, you know, later on that day they found out it killed someone they knew. And so you see, you know, I've seen them actively, physically go through this, you know, in the military. And we're not in a combat situation. I'm on a post where we train people for combat, but we're not actively in combat. Um, and though the, I've 
actually heard verbatim from their mouths, hey, this environment, this scene right here, I'm, I'm back in Afghanistan, I'm back in Iraq. And so I'm sitting there looking at, you know, at a colleague of mine just feeling my, my heart being pulled, you know, it's just, it's a heavy thing. You see that weight that they carry. Um, and I remember one, one guy I was rolling with in jujitsu had told me, Hey, um, I was in a car accident a few months ago. So if I get really stiff and rigid on the mats, I'm sort of having flashback. And it was, it was one of the coolest moments. One of the first times in my life I've heard someone express, Hey, um, I don't know how to stop this, but I will have a flashback potentially. And I just want you to know my body's acting this way. This is what I'm experiencing. And I remember the power of him having that language to label that and externalize that. And that was so cool. Um, and it was so inspiring for me to say, well, you just own that. You absolutely own that. And um, so now that I'm studying psychology and wrapping up this, this master's program, I'm, I'm constantly looking back at all the interactions I've had throughout life that have sort of fed into this concept. And um, I, I personally have uh, experienced some trauma in the past and that has come out in jujitsu. Um, and I can definitely go into that if that's something to, to talk about now, but uh, I, don't, I don't mind sharing this. It's, uh, it has to do with child abuse. So I realized in jujitsu, there was a moment in my life where I was being, the coach had mentioned that I was freezing essentially. He was, he was asking me why I couldn't execute a certain type of move in, in jujitsu. I had no idea why. And what happened is my body was in looking back now at the neurophysiology, what happened was flooding and I, uh, the freeze response, I was stuck in a freeze response. And later through therapy, I realized I was, I came to the revelation that this was a, a freeze response regarding my motor neurons um, related to a re-experienced um, sort of vision or feeling from trauma as a, as a child, I was having a flashback. And so on the mats in jujitsu, my body was in a position and there's enough pressure in certain areas and there's a, a feelings-based, you know, expression of the, the art that we do in jujitsu that was completely reminiscent of me as a child um, first undergoing that abuse. And so what happened is I, I froze, I shut down, and then my brain started ruminating on thoughts, on a lot of dark um, memories and a lot of uh, pre, I would say almost like a pre-verbal um, experience. Like I didn't have words to put it. It was just this all-encompassing sort of darkness, this shroud that came over me where I just, it was the heaviest feeling in my life. And I kept going to jujitsu, in fact, because I had no idea that it was happening from the mats. But all I knew was that that was that one safe space where I could be around people and I could connect with others in a really cool way. Because um, I'm, I'm very uh, kinesthetic. I, I love touch. And that's how it's just, I feel like I'm sort of a puppy in a pack. You know what I mean? It's just we we roll together and it's his family, but it was actually bringing up some crazy stuff. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely a heavy topic. It took a while to get to the point where I can talk about this and not um, go into it and just be completely exhausted. You know, there were times where even just scratching the surface of what I just disclosed to you would leave me and it's so weird. I mean, I would have just vivid dreams or nightmares or flashbacks or whatever it was. And I would just wake up exhausted, just even thinking about what happened or allowing those feelings to come back. I love what you mentioned also about rolling with the one guy and he had words to talk about how this might trigger his car accident. And it does get into 
um, what you were discussing about people are talking about this more, there's more, you know, resources, which is a big contrast to even five to 10 years ago when people were not talking about PTSD. Now I think it's made its way luckily into kind of the lay audience and people understand what that means. But I think it hits on stigma as well. And I, I know you wanted to talk about stigma in, in different cultural contexts. So what are your views on stigma? How can we, we address this? Well, yeah, speaking of culture, and I totally forgot about uh, one, one of the biggest stories of, of PTSD in my life. So my, I'm Middle Eastern. My parents are uh, from Iraq. Uh, my father actually passed away this year, but he, uh, yeah, I mean, he's still close to my heart, you know, uh, and he's proud of a lot of the stuff that I was doing in this regard. So it's, it's really cool um, working on this, just growing and giving this gift to others. But my parents, um, well, they experienced a lot of trauma in the Middle East. Um, my mom, especially as a woman um, over there, she was, we've seen with Afghanistan and the refugees and whatnot, what was happening. Um, a lot of times women are, could be objectified by certain uh, communities and especially if they're of a different ethnicity and whatnot, um, they could be targeted uh, extra violently. And that's what happened to my, my mother. Uh, one of her best friends was dragged away in the middle of the night. You know, they came hunting for her. They found that she was trying to leave the country and God knows what happened to her. Um, my mother was also chased down, but she narrowly escaped twice um, that I know of. I know it's very difficult for her to talk about this stuff, um, but I've asked her, you know, because I believe that uh, there's intergenerational PTSD as well. I believe that this is something where, you know, when the mother has the baby on her breast and the baby's uh, synchronizing with the breath pattern and the heartbeat and all of that, that the mother's basal anxiety rate is going to translate to the babies and the baby might not have words for it, but the baby's going to feel that. And so I believe that there's a lot of trauma that my parents both experienced that they weren't able to seek therapy for. They didn't even know, you know, they weren't educated in that capacity. And so how could they know, right? And so um, as children, we've experienced that. We've seen things where they wake up in the middle of the night screaming or certain things will just absolutely drive fear into them. Um, things with like ISIS happening overseas while I have buddies who are, you know, Navy SEALs and just complete badasses doing stuff over there fighting the bad guys. You know, my parents are sitting there watching the news thinking, oh my gosh, we escaped this. And this is coming back to, to haunt us, you know, um, it's just terrible stuff. And uh, with that culture, the cultural sort of stigma, um, a lot of these women will commit suicide after they're raped. Um, they'll, they'll kill themselves because they feel that they are broken beyond repair. And the culture has a lot of what I've noticed is shame-based ideologies, whereas Western cultures tend to be more guilt-based, like Lexus Rex, you know, laws, uh, laws came. There's, uh, and I think this had to do a lot with the uh, sort of like the ancient, the ancient Greeks and ancient Rome. And there's a sort of a divergence in which there's Eastern um, philosophies and, and Western. And so with the Eastern, it's a lot more shame-based. And so there's, there's a lot of family honor talks, right? There's people who commit suicide for the sake of the family who kill themselves if they dishonor the family or being ostracized, basically, um, and kicked out of the family for, for being different. And so um, me coming from that culture, I realize how there's, there's a fear, there's a desire to hide shame. And in psychology, we have to, we have to bring it out. We have to remove the mask. We have to see it there and allow it to be exposed and not bring shame into it, not make anything taboo, but say, look, we've got to discuss this. You know, this, um, this needs to be talked about in order for us to gain mastery over it. And so I personally have driven a lot of family members crazy because I asked them, please, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. I feel it. I'm, I'm hypersensitive. I understand that. You know, I grew up crying a lot as a little kid. I'm, I, I, I still tear up in movies. Like, I'm, I can't be ashamed of this stuff, you know. Um, I used to be. I used to be really ashamed of it. 
And now I'm realizing uh, that's a superpower, you know? And so I'm trying to teach my family, like, look guys, we, we can't, we literally can't afford, we cannot afford to live our lives shaming ourselves or shaming others for delving into this stuff and getting it out there on the table. And it's been difficult. It's been difficult. Um, I am now that guy who shows up and I tell family, you know, you got to see a therapist. You've got to see a counselor. This is not, you shouldn't have to carry this burden on your own. And they fight it. There are relatives who absolutely despise that. And uh, I, I'm never, I'm never going to stop. I don't say it in a condescending way. I'm not trying to make them feel bad, but I lovingly want to let them know whatever it is you're carrying, you don't have to carry that. Um, and that's, that's just on my heart. You know, I, I hate seeing people live out these patterns of behaviors and these compensatory behaviors, you know, maladaptive uh, behaviors where they, they, they self-medicate in the wrong ways because they're, they're you know, I heard um, John Bradshaw used to say that alcoholics are um, trying to put a fire out. So they run into the ocean and drown themselves. That's what alcoholism is. And so you see people self-medicate, they're, they're killing themselves, self-medicating and running away from trauma. And, um, you know, there's a lot of, especially with, you know, masculinity or whatever it is in the, in the Eastern cultures that, you know, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's ironic because we have some of the strongest women in our cultures, like the women run the house, essentially. If you ever see Big Fat Creek Wedding, that's exactly what it is. The man is the head of the house, the woman's the man. She turns the man wherever she wants him to go. And that's so true. The women, I, we have amazingly strong women in our family. Um, and honestly, much so, much more than men, they always speak their mind. The men will stay quiet. The women will say what's out there. They'll get it off their chest. They will fight. They will yell. They will hate. This is, you're going to see me now that we're going to be present, right? And the men, I, and I want to encourage them to, to, to speak with that same honesty and that truth, you know, and to not think that, oh, I'm a man, so I have to bury this and hide it, or I'm, you know, part of this culture and I have to hide it. It's, that's, um, and we all know that men, men are much more prone to suicide than, than women are. And, and women also outlive men by 10 years, you know, eight to 10 years. And so there's this, the obvious weight of our physiology carrying shame or guilt or fear and living in that. And so to, my biggest goal is to speak back to my culture and let them know. I mean, I, at some point, I imagine I'm going to go overseas and maybe even go back to the villages where my parents are from and just want to educate people, you know, not, not force anything down anyone's throat, but just simply present that information and let them teach themselves, let people learn about, um, hey, there's, there's, there's a thread here to tug at and see what unravels, you know, what paradigms need to be shifted. But uh, I personally really struggle with this with my family because um, my dad used to tell me, he, you know, he used to say that I'm not really sort of like one of his people. He's like, you're, you're American. You're, you know, you grew up in the U.S. You're, you're, you're more American than you are Middle Eastern. And my dad, I told him, like, negotiating with him was, it was rough. It was really rough, you know. And, uh, but before he passed away, we did really see eye to eye. It, it took his death, um, his dying process to, to reach this vulnerable state. It took him a lot for, to let that. And, you know, even the nurses acknowledged in the hospital, like, hey, he doesn't want to tell us his symptoms because we're women. And Middle Eastern men like him, they don't want to share this stuff. They, they, it's, it's shameful for him. And um, so he would tell me what was going on, you know, some intimate um, symptoms of what he was going through. And I would let them know, hey, this, this is what my dad needs medication for. You know, this. and they, they, it was just hard because he, he was, he had to keep that wall up. You know, he was trained, he was raised in that capacity. And I love him. You know, I, it took me a while though. I, I fought him a lot. My dad, if you don't speak about this stuff, you're not going to get 
it helped. And so, yeah, now I have that sort of, um, that conviction in my heart that I need to be gentle with the way that I do it, uh, a gentle, tough love approach, but there is a subset of people um, both in the Eastern communities of this world and then also in the male culture as well, you know, where they're far more prone to self-harm and suicide. And that's so, so sad, especially, you know, with war heroes, with vets, um, the enemies didn't kill them, but they're killing themselves. Like that is so just, I, it hurts to even conceptualize that, you know, that's very, uh, yeah, it's, it's heavy, but that's, that's my mission. And I'm not going to fear, uh, but I'm going to go in there brave and it's going to be a fight and people are going to fight back and, Ignorance is going to be out there. Ignorance is very loud, but um, you know, when you love something, it's not work. It's it's passion and it's it's love, and that's how I feel about the whole world of psychology. That is so clear, and I cannot wait to see what you do. Tanya, thank you so much for doing this. I finally convinced you. So (laughs) (laughs) Tanya is my friend and also my mentor at work. So um, go ahead and introduce yourself, not for me, but for the tape. Hi, thanks, Hillary, for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. Um, My name is Tanya Yovanovich. I'm a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences here at Wayne State University. And I've been studying PTSD and specifically the neurobiology of PTSD for almost 20 years now. And uh, so most of my research has focused on uh, the impact of trauma on brain in both adults and children and using different neuroscience-based methods to really assess how PTSD is impacting the brain and the body for people. Awesome. So let's get into it. PTSD. Um, I think people are more familiar with this diagnosis now, but I think people won't realize that it wasn't actually recognized by the DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, aka the Bible for Psychiatry, um, (laughs) until 1980. So it actually has a really interesting history. Can you give us a little bit about the history of PTSD? Yeah, so post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, was really first noticed in Vietnam veterans coming back from war. And so that's why even though it was noticed already in World War II veterans and uh, veterans from the Korean Wars that there were some problems that they were having when they were coming home. It wasn't really recognized as a true mental disorder until the 1980 uh, version of the DSM-3. And then it was uh, put into the category of anxiety disorders. It was thought of as another anxiety disorder. And then it stayed the same for the next 20 years. In the year 2000, the DSM-4 came out. And PTSD didn't really change much between 1980 and 2000. And it wasn't until 2013 with the DSM-5 where PTSD actually changed a lot. And it was now classified as a trauma or stressor disorder. And uh, additional symptoms were noticed, you know, negative cognitions, feeling betrayed by people in the world in the aftermath of trauma. Uh, Other things that weren't 
part of the original diagnosis of PTSD. And just historically, PTSD, because it was first uh, really recognized in Vietnam veterans, it was really thought of as a disorder of veterans, of war, uh, conflict, war zone, trauma, and really military personnel. And civilian trauma wasn't really understood very well. There was some understanding that sexual assault could lead to PTSD, especially in women. But in really more recent times, we've been looking at the impact of neighborhood violence and that, you know, urban trauma as one of the bigger sources of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so really expanding the definition, I, I think that's a really important point because like you said, most people think PTSD, they think veterans or first responders, but not so much uh, more of what you're calling civilian trauma. And you and your group have done so much uh, in that area that we will get into in a couple minutes. I, I wanted to ask you more about what types of symptoms people experience. What is it like for people to have this condition? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, some people might express symptoms differently. One of the more classic things, you know, when you are watching a movie with someone who has classic PTSD might be, you know, waking up with nightmares about the thing that happened. So this traumatic event might then also come back in intrusive memories that a person doesn't want. And it really causes, uh, you know, a lot of physiological reactions. So racing heart, maybe sweating, difficulty breathing. And then also it could come with depressed mood, problems concentrating, difficulty forming relationships with other people. There's this idea of foreshortened future, which means that people with PTSD, because they've lost people either during war or other traumatic circumstances, they think that they won't live very long either. And this might impact how they function with other individuals and they might not form relationships very well. And this is also one of the things that, you know, is a big complaint for individuals who live with someone with PTSD. So it's Mm -hmm. not just the person themselves that suffers, but a parent, a spouse, a child will be impacted Mm -hmm. by someone with PTSD. Yeah, that's so true for a lot of the brain disorders that we've covered so far and in the future that it's really um, kind of a family disease in, in a lot of ways. Um, what, how common is PTSD and, and what does it look like? When do symptoms typically begin? Yeah, great question. So we, um, you know, we know that uh, exposure to trauma is very common, especially once we think about urban trauma and neighborhood violence. We know that in the U.S., about 50 to 60 percent of people will experience a traumatic event regardless of their socioeconomic status, where they've grown up, you know, just looking kind of broadly across the nation. If you look across the globe, there's some studies by the World Health Organization that shows that trauma is really ubiquitous. It's, we've, it's found everywhere. And what varies a little bit is the type of trauma. Um, but not everybody who experiences trauma will develop PTSD. And this is one of the biggest mysteries about this disorder is why some people might and others might not develop PTSD because really only a small percentage of people do develop PTSD. Again, looking at the population broadly, about 10%. If you look at groups that have a lot more frequency and severity of trauma. So like our inner city urban populations where we see a lot of neighborhood violence, we might see 
rates, 30-40% of the individuals with trauma will have PTSD. But those are really uncommonly high proportions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, for those who don't know, Tanya and I work in Detroit, Michigan, which mm-hmm. is one of those um, urban areas where a lot of trauma exposure, a lot of PTSD, unfortunately. Um, what are current treatments for PTSD? So this is uh, another really interesting question. The Institute of Medicine now a few years ago did a kind of research for evidence-based methods for treatment of PTSD. And the only one that actually met this uh, kind of benchmark for evidence-based was exposure therapy, which is uh, really a form of cognitive behavioral therapy where a person will talk about their traumatic event, but in a safe space with a therapist. So it is essentially psychotherapy or talk therapy. In terms of medication, there's been almost no progress in two or three decades now, and it is one of the ways in which this field is desperately needing to move forward is to better understand um, some of the biochemistry involved in PTSD to help people a little bit better The medications that we have uh, indications for PTSD are really antidepressants, and so they were primarily there to soothe depression or anxiety, maybe help people sleep, but they don't target the core symptoms of PTSD. Right. So got a lot of work to do. Yes. (laughs) Work is cut out for you. Um, I want to start getting into kind of the neuroscience of this and how you study this disorder, and you already did allude to one of the ways, which is one of what you call the most mysterious questions, which is why two people can experience the same trauma and one person may develop PTSD, one person may not. So for you as a scientist, that's one of the ways that you're able to you know, look at what's different in the brain. Um, PTSD is also really unique among the mental disorders because we actually do know when it starts. You need to have that core trauma um, to actually get that PTSD diagnosis. So in some ways it does provide you know, a timeline for you to go in and say, okay, we can follow people after they've developed a trauma and see and answer some of those questions. And that is, in fact, what you've been doing in some of your studies. So wanted to ask you um, what kind of approaches have you been using and things like the Gravy Trauma Project um, and your recent work in the Detroit Trauma Project and also the Aurora study. Oh, yeah, great. Um, so one of the things, you know, that we know or seems to be a brain-related risk factor for PTSD is hippocampus volume. And this has been known for a while that people with PTSD have a smaller hippocampus. But what we don't know is the chicken and the egg question. Is it that someone has a smaller hippocampus, so now they experience a trauma and they're more likely to develop PTSD? Or is it that once you have PTSD, the stress of that actually impacts the size of your hippocampus? your hippocampus. And so one of the problems when you're looking at people who had experienced trauma a really long time ago is that you can't answer that question. And ideally, you would be able to maybe do some assessments or brain imaging or testing before someone is experiencing trauma. But it's really hard to predict who or when they might experience trauma. And there have been studies that have looked at soldiers' pre-deployment, firefighters, police officers, and have some data on this. But because, again, the lower rates of people who develop PTSD versus exposed to trauma, it's really hard to get at those individuals that you had access to before they deployed, have access to after they've come back, 
and now also can compare the individuals who developed PTSD versus those who did not. So the closest we really have to getting that kind of prospective data is trying to capture people as soon after the traumatic event as we can. And so the way we've done that, especially in the civilian trauma populations, has been in emergency department studies. So we recruit individuals typically 24 to 72 hours after they've been brought to the emergency department, usually in an ambulance right after something bad has happened. Uh, in big cities, 50% of that is motor vehicle accidents. So, you know, someone was in a bad crash and they were just brought to the hospital. But we do see a lot of gun violence, assault victims also being brought to the emergency department. And then we can do some, you know, assessment or really measurement both on the biology but also their history before they came to the ED. But in our studies, we've tried to look at what's happening at the level of the brain immediately after and then look at who has PTSD six months later or 12 months later. And uh, so we've done this both at Grady in the hospital at, uh, in Atlanta, but then the multi-site study that you referred to, Aurora, really involved 31 emergency departments across the nation Four of them had MRIs uh, that we could actually look at what's happening at the level of the brain, and we did it um, two weeks after trauma, and then we looked at who developed PTSD. And based on that data, it does seem that both the hippocampal volume, but activity in the hippocampus, and this what we are thinking of individuals who are very threat reactive, which means they're very, very sensitive to responding to threat, and their threshold might be very low. And we see that both at the level of the brain, where we might see hyperactivation of the amygdala and other limbic circuits. And we also see heightened physiological responses in those individuals. And those are the individuals that will not fare as well as the others. So over time, they recover more slowly or they don't recover as well as others. That's super interesting, though, and the, just the ability to track those individuals over time and see, like, who, quote-unquote, recovers versus doesn't, because um, you would expect that if you undergo something like a major car accident that, you know, you're going to show all of those same symptoms, at least for a little bit. Is is that right? Exactly. So, you know, we don't even diagnose PTSD truly until 30 days after mm -hmm. the event happens. Because it is normal, most people will have some nightmares, some hesitancy about driving, you know, um, maybe some physiological reactivity to getting back in a car. But for most people, that subsides after about a month. Mm -hmm. But for those who continue to feel the same way, and it actually has, you know, a true functional impairment in that now they can't drive to work, so they lose their job, you know, things like that. There are serious consequences. Uh, for continuing to have those symptoms past 30 days. Mm -hmm. So persisting in that state. Yeah. Great. I wanted to ask you too, so the hippocampus does a lot of things. It's very sensitive to stress, one of the, the main regions implicated in PTSD. One of the other things that contributes to beyond learning and memory is fear. And I know fear is like the emotion of your lab <laughs> and <laughs> very timely because we're now officially in October. So yes. um, being afraid and actually making yourself afraid is exciting for a lot of people. People seek out fear. They go to roller coasters. Mm -hmm. They want to be afraid. But um, fear can also be a bad thing and it can be detrimental. And, and PTSD 
um, it does play a role and fear becomes very dysregulated. So I wanted you to, to go into, if you would, if you would mind, um, your work on fear and how fear is regulated. Yeah, uh, you know, I always joke that I scare people for a living. <laughs> you do. She has fear chambers. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I'm a professional fear monger for sure. Uh, but the reason that we focus on fear and the biology of fear is because we can leverage many decades of work in animal models that have really parsed this circuitry in detail to better understand what's happening in PTSD. So this is a you know, more straightforward or, you know, sometimes we think about it, just um, clear path to understanding the brain if we focus on this very primitive behavior. And as you said, fear is, it's really adaptive. You know, for most humans and animals, we wouldn't be alive if we weren't afraid of the things we needed to be afraid of. Uh, certainly for someone going into the military, it's really important to feel fear in the right context. Mm -hmm. But where it becomes really maladaptive or disruptive if you generalize that fear to many different things. And if you can never feel safe and if you can't tell the difference between the things that are threatening and the things that aren't threatening. And that's where PTSD comes in, is that someone with PTSD might not be able to respond in the right way in a safe situation. So even though they might know cognitively, be aware that nothing bad is going to happen, their body might respond in such a way that they might feel a panic response. So uh, an example might be of, you know, we always used to use this back in the days when we were really focused on Vietnam veterans, but a veteran in you know Detroit or Atlanta might see a news helicopter and be immediately reminded of Vietnam and all the helicopters in Vietnam and so they might be aware that they're in a safe space but their body so their the brain activity and physiological response might take them right back to Vietnam and they might have a panic response and in that then they might then avoid going out of the house, avoid people, avoid going to work, uh, be, you know, what we call hypervigilant, always on guard, always looking for out for danger. And this then, you know, really impacts their quality of life, but also just their ability to function, you know, with other people in the workforce, you know, and be productive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great picture. I wanted to turn now to um, some of the recent developments, because I do really think it's a very exciting time to be in neuroscience. I'm a little biased, but the neuroscience around these topics mm -hmm. are very exciting because um, a lot of the reasons you mentioned, one is that PTSD is kind of tractable or we can't actually intervene because we do know when you know symptoms begin to start. And um, that provides an opportunity to, to do things like in the emergency department. And I know you're, you're doing mm -hmm. some stuff there, um, but also leveraging um, cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure therapy to make those things better. So talk about what you're most excited about right now in terms of treatment. Yeah, what a great question. I, <laughs> so I'm many excited things. about so many things. I think one of the problems of being an academic <laughs> is that there's not just one thing that interests you. Um, I think for me, uh, at the end of the day, the thing I'm most passionate about is brain development and how we help children with trauma exposure. And we know that children, for the most part, are resilient, 
but some won't be. And if we can both identify those children early and design some intervention that's really prevention. So I always think about if we know that a kid has a lot of risk factors, uh, whether it's their environment or their biology, and so maybe they're on a track that leads them down the road into a mental illness, whether it's depression or PTSD, is there something we can do early on to knock them off that track and to really promote resilience? And I think those are the things I'm most excited about. And I'm most excited about doing it at the level of the brain. So identifying if there are either you know, areas of the brain or certain ways in which the brain functions that are already sort of off a bit and that we can try to intervene to right them maybe before it's too late for those kids. And so, for example, we know that that regulating fear, the ability to tell the difference between threat and safety, if that's sort of out of whack, maybe there's something we can do to make that better. So maybe we can stimulate the brain regions involved in fear inhibition during safety context. Maybe we can build a brain that responds better to future trauma and that can handle that better. You know, ideally, this would be something that would be a long-term solution and not something akin to a medication that a child would have to take them for the rest of their life. Right. And I think where the field is right now, even with medication, is trying to pair medication with either you know psychotherapy or maybe with brain stimulation so that the combination of those things then has a lasting impact. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we're going to do a whole episode on <laughs> pediatric PTSD and trauma. So yeah. thank you for bringing that up. I think that's a really important point, too, is that it's not just adults we're talking about here. Ch uh, children also experience trauma. And that's something that you and I both share yeah. in our passion. Um, you mentioned um, brain stimulation, which I think is another one of those areas that's super exciting in terms of neuroscience, things like mm -hmm. TMS. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about what those techniques are and how they're being used in the area of PTSD? Mm -hmm. So transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, um, kind of uses a, sort of a magnetic field to activate brain regions. And it's typically been used in depression and really in people who have long-standing treatment-resistant depression, who don't do well with medication and are, you know, at high risk for suicide. And so TMS has been used primarily in those populations. And it's just starting to be used as a treatment for PTSD. I think one of the ways that it might be most useful, again, is pairing it with something else. And um, for example, uh, exposure therapy, which I mentioned was the most evidence-based uh, treatment for PTSD, is really based on uh, extinction learning. So that something that was threatening, if you are repeatedly exposed to the stimuli, but now without the bad outcome, and exposure therapy means, you know, you're talking about the traumatic event again and again and again, but in a safe space to where it no longer is producing that fear response, you're getting that exposure therapy. But TMS can maybe help really make those brain regions that are gonna be strengthened during extinction learning to be more malleable to change. And so again, combination of TMS with exposure therapy might have better um, long-term sort of consequences in a good way for PTSD 
than just maybe standalone TMS. Um, and, you know, we're sort of in a early phases of brain stimulation research. Most of the things that we know how to do right now uh, have pretty short time windows. So TMS is typically, you know, if you stimulate for 20 minutes, um, the brain is still kind of labile for another 20 minutes after that. But then it kind of is set. And so you either have to do many repeated sessions, but again, each one of those, the effect is temporary. Mm-hmm. And some of the other stimulation methods also, there's just a temp- temporary stimulation. But what you can do is take advantage of that plasticity to then do something else. Mm-hmm. So whether you use medication or exposure therapy, during that plasticity window, you might get some long-term effects because it's the long-term effects that we really want. Mm-hmm. And a lot of like that research is really being guided by what you mentioned earlier, which is the preclinical studies where we can actually get in there to tinker with different brain areas in ways that we cannot do in humans <laughs> right, or would not want right. to. Although you are Mrs. Fear, so <laughs> I need to be careful what I say you won't do. No, <laughs> she does not do anything. <laughs> She's not shock children or anything like that. But I think that's one of the other cool areas is that we have a lot of advances on the preclinical side yeah. that really get in there and tell us what is happening and what are the neural circuits that inform fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, this is where we can leverage really that work that's been done a long time. And we can look at some of the fear conditioning models that have been developed in animals for a long time. And because in animal models you can, uh, you know, look more specifically at the brain regions involved and you can look at you know protein expression in different parts of the brain when when animals are afraid or not afraid so it really gives us a better window not just a, at looking more at more detail level at what's happening at the brain but also manipulating some of those regions because again we can do some manipulation TMS is an example of that but TMS is relatively blunt as an instrument. So we typically can stimulate one region of the brain, which then connects to other regions of the brain. But the amygdala, which is part of the fear circuit, is actually pretty deep in the brain. And it's really hard using TMS to stimulate that deeply. So that's where animal models are really useful because we can actually stimulate not just the amygdala, but even smaller nuclei within the amygdala to look more at causality. And a lot of human research you know, is limited when it comes to understanding causality because we are kind of looking at correlations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the animal models are, I think, very useful at trying to understand causal mechanisms, both for disease, but also for treatment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you slipped a fun fact in there that the amygdala is not a singular structure. <laughs> I think most people hear amygdala and they're like, oh, it's one thing, but it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. So that was cool to hear you hit on that. Last question, what what things or what resources would you recommend for someone who is struggling with PTSD? You know, you can mention research because I do think, and again, I'm biased, but mm-hmm. one of the best ways to give back and to really push this field, for, field forward is to um, volunteer for research studies and some of these treatment studies. So all that said, what would you suggest? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, and, and even uh, Wayne, we have several clinical trials for PTSD uh, ongoing, and so you could, you know, potentially direct directly benefit from the treatment if you're in a treatment group. 
but more broadly, you contribute to our knowledge and understanding of PTSD. So I, I will also emphasize that it's really important, uh, if you can, to volunteer for research opportunities. In terms of resources um, for help, you know, if you go to our um, the Detroit Trauma Project website, DetroitTraumaProject.com, we have a tab for resources, both for mental health services and you know I think we also have a list of low cost and online tools for mental health resources that are available and some that are available here at Wayne State for free. I will say that it's really important in the aftermath of trauma to speak to someone about it and. There's typically a resistance to talk about it. People might be either embarrassed or, you know, have other reasons why they just don't want to talk about it. But one of the things that we know for sure is that not talking about it is one of the biggest predictors of later being symptomatic. Mm -hmm. And so it is important to talk to someone who's trusted. So whether that's a therapist, a family member, um, you know, maybe someone in your church. You know, ideally, it's a professional who can actually help you mm-hmm. uh, understand your symptoms and really work to help you either, you know, kind of prevent the onset of serious disease later or help you get better in the moment. So, uh, you know, PTSD is a serious illness, but it is also very treatable. And we know that exposure therapy works. So, talking to someone about it is really important. Awesome, thank you. We'll definitely link to all of those resources and the bio to the podcast. Yeah. I'm also gonna link to clinicaltrials.gov. Mm-hmm. So if you're not in the Detroit area, there's all, um, you know, you can just search PTSD and you can find a trial near you if you're interested in doing that. I wanna thank you so much for your time and for doing this you're after welcome. much wrangling. <laughs> um, I also wanna thank Wayne Radio for hosting us today. We're recording on yeah. their beautiful podcast setup here, which is very different from Zoom in my kitchen. So <laughs> thank you to Rain Radio and thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Hillary. This was really fun. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of the Brainstem Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and share this with friends and family and be sure to follow us on social media at Brainstem Podcast.